welcome to the China and Africa podcast. I'm Kobus van Staden. I'm sitting in for Eric Olander this week uh, because because of a, a sad and broken internet connection um, in Southeast Asia. Um, and today I'm again joined by Roman Ditkin, who just got his PhD uh, from from the Sorbonne. Um, Roman, can you tell us um, in your PhD you may, you work both on Chad and South Africa? Can you tell us like what what which aspect of Chinese engagement engagement with South Africa you looked at? Hi, Kovis. Thanks for having me again. Um, in South Africa, we're specifically looking at the Chinese malls, at the, the commercial structures who are being more and more present in the Johannesburg landscape. And so I was looking at how they were organized, how they were structured, and how they would engage with what they call a hostile environment, or let's say, let's put it as a, a challenging uh, business environment. So when you say a China mall, what, what does that actually mean? When you go there, what do you actually see? Um, from the outside, what, what is interesting is that um, you, you might think that all those malls would work hand in hand, but actually they are independent, autonomous structures who compete uh, one with each other. And so if you walk inside, usually what, what I would call a China mall would be, um, so there might be a Chinese owner, a Chinese promoter, uh, there are uh, Chinese administration boards, management boards, and most of the, the shops are being run by Chinese uh, shopkeepers. This is changing over time, but this is what initially what happened. And um, so maybe just to give you a very uh, quick background on the, if you if you want me to uh, yes, yes, be great. Um, elaborate on that. So um, the first one started in, in 1995, which is called China City near Alice Park, uh, which is close to the city center. And basically it was a response because um, with the changing, um, let's say, the political context in South Africa and also increasing rates of criminality, of crime, um, most of the Chinese um, before that time were working as wholesalers and so let, let's say let's say some of the Chinese who are being involved in wholesale would sell immediately out of warehouses, warehouses that would be situated in Selby, in Asando, um, and mostly near the airport area, where they had a lot of space and there were lots of air warehouses, and so they would direct, directly um, have contact with people purchasing from them. So there were during that time, lots of them were actually uh, targeted by. Uh, by violent crime, and so one of the, the responses, one of the, the answer to change that kind of very tricky situation for them was to um, to build up a, a commercial structure which would provide a safe environment in which the Chinese shopkeepers could work. And so this first businessman, he was from Hong Kong, he just bought up um, uh, a supermarket and, and an office tower. And so what he did that, and he started renting out those uh, after having, <clears throat> after changing the the um, the perimeter and trying some some stuff, um, he rented it out to to Chinese entrepreneurs who were willing to to rent a place and work within those structures. So it was the first one, and then from the turn of the uh, at the turn of the the century, more and more of those buildings actually opened up, but they. Um, 
they were concentrated in an area in the south and outskirts of town in an area called uh, Crown Mines, and which is also leading towards Fortsburg. And so most of those commercial structures are actually concentrated in that area. And, you know, kind of just, just to put people, people who haven't been to Johannesburg in the picture, um, for a long time during the 1990s, 80s and 90s, the, the center of, of, of Johannesburg, which would have been downtown, um, yeah. ended up becoming very poor with a lot of big businesses moving towards the north to an area called Sandton. Um, so now, you know, so for a long time, the, the center of the city, which would have been the traditional, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the densest and traditionally richest part of the city, actually became quite poor and quite crime-ridden. Um, and so, and all of these, there were these, all of these, these uh, big warehouse buildings and so on, is either empty or filled with, with uh, very poor squatters. Um, now the city is gentrifying quite quite quickly, um, and some of these areas are now filling up with, you know, with, in, a, in a, the usual kind of gentrification kind of uh, model. Um, do, do you see, like, what kind of impact did the Chinese business have on the bigger city? I mean, to which extent did they... Did they you know, take take uh, take part in in these processes. Um, I think you, as a Joburger, you might know much better the how the spatial organisation of the city, which is in, in itself quite diverse and quite complex already. But initially, I would say that. The spatial disposition and, and, and configuration of those Chinese structures is also responds how the city is structured and still having, uh, in terms of, um, that, how do you, where do you fit in into a post-apartheid kind of spatial organisation? And what the Chinese did, what um, what's quite, what was quite interesting from their perspective is that they were mostly selling affordable goods, and so they were providing. Um, uh, especially during the 90s and the, at the beginning of the of the, uh, the uh, 2000s, that early 2000s, they were providing something that wasn't necessarily that present. You had stores like like local franchises like Edgar's, Ackerman's, Pap stores, and so on and so forth, who now are starting also to having very affordable goods. But during the late 90s, um, trying to find affordable goods and trying to get into this kind of whole business was quite tricky. So the Chinese, they provided this platform. And in the sense that um, the Chinese malls became those, uh, I would call it a, a resource base for uh, second, secondary economic operators, be it hawkers, be it intermediate, uh, intermediate uh, wholesalers, being it end consumers as well, who would come not only locally, but it would come from the broader region, would come from different countries, and in order to purchase goods, either in wholesale or either in retail. For the retail, the end consumers would um, obviously come rather from Johannesburg, but from the other secondary operators, uh, they would come from both from Johannesburg, from South Africa, but also from neighboring countries. And so what it did is that uh, within the city, um, I think it's, it's something that's quite uh, also related to the the, the, the changing nature of the, the city center, what's happening right now. And I, I think you also followed the story about the removal of the informal traders yes. in the city center. Yeah, so for, all this, for, this, sorry to interrupt you. For, for people who, who, are, who don't follow um, South African news, there was a, a big street that runs right through the center of, of Johannesburg, where, which it turned slowly but surely turned into a kind of a big market, you know, kind of where there's, there were lots of little, little market stalls where people were selling all kinds of different things. There were 
for example, people, you know, a lot of micro hairdressing stores where people could go and have their hair done and so on. And recently, the South African government, the, the Johannesburg government, the, the Johannesburg uh, Metropolitan Government, uh, you know, removed all of them. Um, and it became quite controversial in the city. Sorry, um, go ahead. Yeah, no, perfect. Um, I think in addition to those micro shops, there's also an area called the Ethiopian Quarter where those um, well, Ethiopian wholesalers also, um, they are selling bulk um, products in bulk. And most of those um, entrepreneurs, they are getting their stuff from Chinese malls. So it's kind of creating this kind of very vast um, economic landscape, which which is what people might, some people might call informal, and they're very quickly to call it illegal as well. But it's providing lots of opportunities, lots of business opportunities for for people that not they're not able to fit in into uh, the formal economy in a sense. So in in in, in that way, um, the Chinese malls had a, a huge effect in this economic structure within the city centre. And there's this uh, one scholar, uh, her name is Tanya Zak, she, she's done some uh, fascinating work on that um, because she's she's writing a book about the Ethiopian quarter in town and to see also the links between uh, those Ethiopian, uh, but also from other areas in, in Africa of neighboring countries are uh, being involved in, in business activities and how do they purchase their stuff in those Chinese malls. So you mentioned that um, that the Chinese business people themselves tend to see South Africa as a challenging business environment. Um, how, why do they see it like that and, and how do they deal with those kind of challenges? I think it's a twofold story. In one sense, Johannesburg is being seen as um, a city with opportunities where you can um, make a good life. At least that was what they said initially. But now they say like the competition is growing. The market is, uh, the offer of affordable goods is growing steadily. And also to give you another, um, to um, get rid of another myth saying that um, because in South Africa you also have to talk about um, South Africa being invaded by Chinese products, all this what, what the Kusatu is usually also this kind of um, showing and saying that um, putting the Chinese as a scapegoat in a, in a sense. If you look at the figures, basically um, the vast majority of Chinese products are not imported by the Chinese malls but imported by local franchises. All of them, like Fushini, Adgars, uh, Akamans, all of them, they, they are actually importing most of the Chinese products. Um, and so for initially for the Chinese uh, ent- migrant entrepreneurs, who all of them are working on their own um, in, in, in a way that um, your neighbor, your Chinese shopkeeper neighbor is your biggest competitor. So they're not working at this idea of the China in corporate kind of thing that's going on. That's It's... It's clearly the opposite of what's going on. So this is one idea of Johannesburg being a big market and so being able to um, to have your business, increase your lifestyle, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, being in a very challenging environment, both from crime and from corruption. So the biggest things that always come up is that uh, as Chinese, how you are targeted by both by criminals and by uh, in, in a very paradox way by, by the metro cops. Um, so in terms of crimes, there's this idea of um, this very simplified idea of the Chinese, okay, they don't speak the language, so they're not going to go and see the cops. So they're very easy victims. Um, there's this image of Chinese having lots of cash on them. And there's also this image of they living in a very isolated way. So that's in, in, in response to that, they, they're very often targeted for criminal activities. And on the other hand, also, 
what I've realized over the years when I was conducting my fieldwork there. Um, I'm not trying to assume something, but um, it is what Chinese shopkeepers said as well, is that they were often very, very often targeted by metro cops for bribes. And with the same idea, saying that the Chinese wouldn't speak the language and in order to buy yourself out of the problem is the easiest way to do is, is just to bribe a cop. And so those kind of things, um, they, they put a, uh, a negative kind of um, component to this very interesting business environment, which is Johannesburg in a sense. And those two uh, things, crime and corruption, is actually what, what, what the shopkeepers are, are mostly um, um, uh, struggling with yeah. next to next to economic competition. Yes. Um, so you know, kind of, you, you also did uh, work on Chinese retail um, in Senegal. Um, can you give us an idea of how is South Africa and Senegal different? Um, you mentioned um, in some of your your work that. Um, you know, kind of that the there are differences in in you know South African Chinatowns tend to be a little bit different from the, the, the traditional conception of them, um, in the sense that you know if you have, if you think of a, of a traditional Chinatown like maybe in New York, um, there people would be living there and then also working there, and that in South Africa it's a bit different. And, um, can can you expand on that and then also how how is it different you know between South Africa and Senegal? Okay, I'll try. Um, I think the beyond the very, um, I think the biggest difference is the um, the scale, in a sense, the way it's organised. You don't in Senegal, you don't have in Dakar where it's this long commercial strip within this uh, close to the city centre, where you have those shops where um, um, maybe I chose my town very poorly a couple of years ago. It's not necessarily retailers because they're both. They're more merchants because mm-hmm. they're both doing wholesale and retail. Okay. So they um, and most of their their profit comes from wholesale, at least to until that extent. That might be changing over the years in Johannesburg, but this is still you know a process in the making. And so there's um, there's a difference of scale and difference in in organ in organizing, and um, so it's not as sophisticated in Dakar as it is in Johannesburg. And I think it's also a response to how the market structure is, what the, what the market offers, what are the challenges. And so it's a response to, to that. Um, but beyond those differences, I think that um, what is quite interesting um, is that in, in both cases, uh, you have the Chinese like playing the role of something like an intermediary or being like in this kind of like interstitial kind of um, having an interstitial kind of presence uh, in, in, in terms of economic behavior. So what they do, they provide um, affordable products to other, to secondary economic operators, both in Senegal uh, and both in South Africa. Uh, and, and so in that way, they, they, they're playing this role as in the 70s, uh, there was this notion of the middleman minority kind of thing. That might be a little bit, um, little bit old-fashioned to call it that way, but it's basically this idea of trying to um, provide business for other people in, in, that, in, that, in that sense. So um, there, there are some similarities in terms of their, their function within the society. Um, and can you just repeat the other question you, you mentioned? Yeah, um, you know, I'm... Um, what was, oh, um, you, you mentioned that, um, 
you know, in, in certain Chinatowns, um, the residential and business tend to be grouped together. It tends to be, you know, kind of all happening within the same area, while in Johannesburg, things tend to sometimes be a bit more decentralized. All right, yeah. Um, I don't think that in the car you can actually talk about a Chinatown. It's more like a commercial street. There are some people living behind it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a Chinatown. I know that in the car people refer to it as their, their, their Chinatown, but in terms of, uh, for me, a Chinatown, there's more uh, diversity in terms of functions, in terms of services, and in well, how, how the, the place is organized. And so I don't really, really think that's what's happening on the ground uh, uh, there in, in the Senegalese context. But um, uh, for some scholars who've been working more uh, in-depth on those topics, is, uh, for instance, Carsten Giese, Laurence Marfin, and Alena Thiel, who've been doing some interesting studies on that, on the, the car case. Uh, in Johannesburg, um, the Chinese malls, they're not necessarily, uh, I wouldn't call them Chinatowns either. Uh, what some of the... the, the the, the mall owners, what they're trying to do is that as a response to um, insecurity, what they're trying to do is to provide accommodation within the Chinese malls. But oh, having spoken to some of the shopkeepers, um, those accommodation facilities are not very popular because mostly you in an area where um, just imagine yourself operating in an area which is specializing in wholesale and you're sitting in your shop the whole day. So it's the most thing is it's 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 boring. It's very boring. So and so, what they want to do? They also want to have a life on their own. They they might sacrifice themselves a lot in in order to to make a better living, in order to provide a better life for the kids, and so on and so forth. But most of them, what they're trying to do is live in an area where there's a real Chinatown, which in Johannesburg is called around the Cyril Dean area, around the Derrick Avenue. Mm. And so what I've what I've seen is that by having spent some time in the area, is that in the morning and in the evenings, there are a lot of informal uh, cab drivers who come and pick up the shopkeepers, some the ones who don't have an own don't uh, own a car, and drive them to their commercial structure, to their China Mall. They work there and they come back in the evening and they can go to a Chinese restaurant. They can be in a Chinese environment. And, and I think in Johannesburg, you can really talk of a Chinatown because it provides you with... Um, a certain number of services and a certain number of functions which you which you can't find in the car. Yeah, I was actually I was actually um, coincidentally I was in Cyril Dean yesterday, um, and the it was very interesting for me. Um, I went food shopping, um, and it's really interesting for me that you know kind of the amount of businesses have seemed to have expanded since the last time I was there, and yeah. also they were catering for people who cook Chinese. You know, kind of like particularly I was looking at food shops particularly, and they were you know kind of this, this was not you know part of part of the kind of trade to the the rest of Joburg. This is for people who knew what they wanted, um, you know, kind of to, to, who were kind of, who knew the kind of, you know, Chinese cooking and they needed specific kind of ingredients. Um, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was really interesting. It was, it was this little enclave of, of, you know, Chinese life, you know, kind of with, within this bigger African city. Yeah, I think what is interesting also, um, I think the Johannesburg case in terms of Chinese presence, be it economically speaking, but also culturally speaking, is a fascinating example. Um, because um, 
When you look at the, the Chinese waves of migration, and there's lots of scholars, um, uh, such as Yun Park and so on and so forth, have been working on those different waves of migration and different identities within the same context from the local Chinese, also called the South African-born Chinese, or SABC, to the Taiwanese during the 70s, and different sub-waves of the third big migration wave. So it also creates a different a diversity of the, the, the spatial embeddedness. And when you go to the, the, the very two-block Chinatown in Commissioner Street, which is near the city center, you have a very different vibe uh, compared to what's going on in Derrick Avenue, which is more like towards the east of the town and which is more like for the newer ways of migration. And what I find quite interesting is that um, having um, chatting with people who use this specific space, uh, as you mentioned, some of them come and they really know where to go, what specific spices they want, what type of food they want, and trying to cater that for, for other areas. But um, there was a recurrent topic that always came back and saying that um, this is a blue-collar Chinatown. This is not uh, where corporate Chinese would go. Mm-hmm. And this is something, that a theme that always came back. And because it's this other place that, that starts developing, that, which I wouldn't call a Chinatown, but it's um, there's a kind of like a, a grouping and a concentration of Chinese restaurants near Morningside in Rivonia. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've been there. You know. Yeah, and for, for, you know, kind of for people who don't know Johannesburg, Morningside and Rivonia are quite rich areas. They're in the northern side of the city. They, they're quite uh, well off. And, and also, you know, kind of connected everywhere by big highways. So it's, it's, it's very much, you know, kind of if you live there, you pretty much need a car. Yeah, and so it's also it kind of a reflection... Um, so you have those three different concentrations of Chinese restaurants, uh, the ones, well, which is downtown, which is not very lively and which is more like a nostalgic kind of point of view where look, all the local Chinese would go and, and know where they spent their youth and where they were growing up and so on and so forth and going to back to Soi Hing Hong, which is uh, a very famous shop there, which provides you with all kind of teas, mushrooms and and whatever you want. And then you have the Cyrilene area where another type of group would go, like both Chinese, but also a, a growing number of locals actually trying to go to this Chinatown, specifically after having, now that the Chinatown has this official gate that surprisingly was inaugurated by the uh, South African president. And uh, then the third area, which is more corporate in a way, where, where other people would go. So it's quite interesting to see the different uses of um those cultural Chinese spaces. It was fascinating. Just as a just as a final point, I was walking around there yesterday, and there were all these you know there's all these hairdressing salons also in Cyrildine, and um, and there was this little little group of Polish people who were there, but you know Polish women who were there having their hair dyed, um, and you know just having this kind of Saturday like Friday morning, Saturday morning, you know uh, you know sitting around waiting for their hair dye to be you know to their their dye job to be finished, you know kind of chatting chatting in Polish. So it was really interesting. Thing is, it, it's like this little, not only enclave of Chineseness, but in a way, this this little place for all of these different minorities in Johannesburg, which is a very very cosmopolitan city. Um, you know, kind of to to gather and hang out. It was really interesting. Yeah. Um, what I find also interesting is that um, you were 
asking me the question about what what's a Chinese mall, and I, I said initially that's how it's being structured, and I think over the over time it's also um, given the the grain competition both from local franchises, but also within those different uh, commercial structures, the nature of a Chinese mall might also change, uh, because there's another one. Um, if the biggest concentration of Chinese structures, commercial structures, is within the south and outskirts of town, so in an area which is mostly wholesale and uh, um, uh, lots of spaces and lots of those kind of wholesale uh, facilities, there's the latest one of the Chinese malls uh, has been opened up in Randburg, which is also part of the more, uh, let's say, the wealthier areas in the north. And um, the thing is that also the nature of business is, seems to be changing in a way that they're not necessarily just looking at the wholesale aspect, aspect of it, but they're also more and more targeting and consumers. And that you don't necessarily only have Chinese shopkeepers, but you have more and more, uh, be it local shopkeepers, be it Indian shopkeepers, be it Pakistani shopkeepers, and so on and so forth. So also in that way it's changing. And just because you said made this comment about uh, the Polish um folks going and getting their hair dyed. Um, so in this one particular Chinese mall, you have lots of um, beauty salons and where local people go um, and get their nails done, get their hair done and, and spend some time there, maybe go and have some Chinese food and maybe go and, and buy some stuff. So also this, this kind of like this Chinese image that's being connected to it that might in, in some cases, it's being used as creating this kind of exotic experience, whereas in other cases, it, it's trying um, becoming more and more invisible in a sense, and it's coming some somehow blurred. Mm. Roman, this is so fascinating. We could we could talk about this for hours and hours, um, and yeah. we'll definitely love to have you back. You know, kind of to expand more on these different points. Um, just just you know, kind of before we end, we usually just want to you know throw out there like where people can follow you and, and how they can keep in contact. Um, you know, are you do you maintain a presence on the internet? Um, I'm actually not on Twitter, but uh, <laughs> what I tr- what I try to do is that. Uh, uh, whenever I try to write a paper, I try to upload it online. And um, some of my papers uh, are on academia.edu. Um, so this is most of my internet presence. And so I'm not following an individual Twitter account. But I might have to do some at some point, I guess. <laughs> um, you can you can find me and Eric, um, who will hopefully be back next week, um, to on, on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And you'll see our names there. You can follow him on Twitter at eolander. That's E-L-O-N-D-E-R. Um, and me at um, at Stadenesk, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And we yeah we look forward to hearing what uh, you know kind of your own experiences of, of Chinese retail in Africa. Please please let us know on our Facebook page. Um, Roman, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we'd love to have you back soon. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs>